This is episode 253 with doctor of physical therapy, certified strength and conditioning specialist, runner, and mom, Dr. Rachel Selman. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode will prepare you for running while pregnant and postpartum. Physical therapist Rachel Selman joins us to discuss how to think about training when you're pregnant, how to modify your running, postpartum training, and more. If you're new to the Strength Running Podcast, this show features training conversations, coaching calls, and experts in the running space to elevate your thinking about the sport. I want to help you make wiser decisions about your training so that you can keep improving. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. But Strength Running is not just a podcast. Don't miss our growing YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos on injury prevention for runners, short strength workouts specific to the sport of running, mantras, and more. Go to youtube.com slash strengthrunning, subscribe, and you'll see every video that we publish. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. Since 2010, we've been helping runners around the world improve with our award-winning blog, our free email courses on topics like strength training, nutrition, injury prevention, and improving your mental game. Plus, all of Strength Running's training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. Learn more about those at strengthrunning.com slash coaching. This episode is brought to you by Inside Tracker, one of my favorite companies that's investing heavily in the running community. They test your blood for dozens of biomarkers so you know if there are any red flags with your physiology that might be holding back your running. Then they give you science-backed recommendations to improve anything that might be outside of your personal optimal ranges. Get 25% off any of their blood tests with code STRENGTHRUNNING at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. The code is STRENGTHRUNNING with no space, and all those details can be seen at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. We're also supported by my favorite electrolyte company, Element. This summer, Prevent the symptoms of electrolyte imbalances like headaches, cramps, fatigue, and weakness with Element. If you have eliminated most processed foods from your diet, you're likely eliminating the largest source of sodium in your diet, according to the FDA. You can get a free gift with your purchase at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. They'll send you a sample pack with one packet of each flavor so that you can try them out before committing. That's drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning, and there's no space in there, to claim your free gift. Our guest today is Dr. Rachel Selman, a physical therapist based in Atlanta, Georgia, who specializes in pregnant and postpartum athletes. She's been trained through Herman and Wallace to deliver women's health physical therapy. She's a mom and a runner herself, which means she not only works in this field, but she lives it. Rachel is also a certified strength and conditioning specialist, and our conversation today is for all of the new and expecting moms out there who might be wondering how their running might be impacted by pregnancy and childbirth. We're discussing the training modifications required when you first get pregnant, whether you should add or remove any specific types of exercise during pregnancy, when to stop running completely, and how to return to running postpartum in the safest way possible. Without further delay, Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Rachel Selman. 
Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, it's at times like these that being a mother would be very advantageous for this podcast right now, but uh, I've never been pregnant, spoiler (laughs) alert for our listeners, nor is this really my area. So I'm definitely going to be leaning on you for your expertise today. And I thought we might be able to start at the beginning of pregnancy and work our way through the next nine months and the early postpartum period to give our listeners an idea of how to think about certain issues related to running and being pregnant or trying to resume your training postpartum. So let's start with that female runner. She finds out she's pregnant. And I guess from a training perspective, what does she have to know right away? Are there any modifications to her training that she should make right at the beginning? So I think this is one of the things, and this is an answer, and I know that you've dealt with this in other podcasts too. So it can be kind of frustrating where we say it depends. Um, first trimester, the thing is people are going to find out that they're pregnant all along that first trimester. So you have people who know like super early before they've even missed a cycle. And sometimes you'll have people who won't find out till they're like eight or nine weeks. And that means that they're already almost to second trimester. So I think the biggest thing for first trimester is understanding that there's so much going on in the body already. Um, a lot of people think, oh, it's early. I'm not showing, you know, I generally should feel the same. But there's so much going on in the body. So the whole kind of premise with first trimester is your body's building this entirely new organ, this placenta to support baby. So hormones go kind of totally wacko. And so while they do that and your body is increasing the amount of blood in your system. So for most people, you're talking about like an average of 1.5 times the amount of blood that you normally have in your body. Um, you can obviously expect a lot of cardiovascular changes. Uh, so that resting heart rate will tend to go up that, um, heart rate with activity will tend to go up for a lot of my patients. Um, especially if you do things like orange theory or things like that, where you're really closely monitoring your heart rate, you might see, um, that might be one of the first signs that you actually are pregnant is like, okay, why am I, why is my heart rate so high if I'm not doing, you know, anything totally crazy. Um, so those changes start to happen very, very, very early. And so keeping that in mind. What happened is it used to be, and this is up until like very recently, that the guidelines for activity during pregnancy had you stay below a certain heart rate. What we have learned is that that heart rate does not actually correlate to your activity level just because of the fact that you are experiencing those cardiovascular changes so early on. So we have learned that that, you know, 60 to 70 percent of your heart rate max trying to stay below that for a lot of women is like, okay, well, I went up and down the stairs or I did 10 body weight squats and like my heart rate shot up. And so that's kind of where I was at because that was the advice that was given to me during my first pregnancy. And I realized like, I can't do anything without my heart rate being that high. And so trying to follow those guidelines that were given to me at the time, I had to cut my exercise like way, 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 way back because I was trying to stay within those kind of heart rate guidelines. So I think the most important thing and the biggest myth that has to go out the window with first trimester is that like the heart rate thing is not a thing anymore. Um, So that's not actually recommended. So we tend to use RPE, which is that rate of perceived exertion. Um, So I think understanding that is really, really key for athletes when they do come in first trimester and they say, hey, I'm pregnant. You know, what can I do? That's one of the first things we talk about is the RPE scale. Like what level should I be at in terms of perceived effort? So first trimester, again, a lot of women don't know that they're pregnant when they are pregnant. And so trying to stay just comfortable, conversational, like you would on an easy run. Um, So if you're using the one to 10 scale in regards to RPE, you're thinking like a one to a four. 
and then occasional bursts of like five to seven. So kind of like occasional little like sprints or things like that strides that you could throw into into that training would be fine. But just knowing that you can expect that your heart rate is going to be higher um, and not panicking about that. Now, don't spend, you know, 45 minutes at 95 percent of your heart rate max, but you shouldn't be doing that anyways. Right. So um, understanding that training in the first trimester doesn't necessarily have to change. It just needs to be comfortable um, within that kind of moderate range is acceptable. I think also biggest thing for first trimester that we have to talk about with a lot of athletes is that that fatigue and that nausea can hit you really hard. So, I mean, I have even the most like motivated people who first trimester just like absolutely wipes them and trying to have that battle with athlete brain of like, okay, I can't even make it to the bathroom without it feeling like a chore. And I'm used to running six days a week. And now like, I am just exhausted. I'm going to lose all my fitness trying to help kind of understand those changes in the body. Because when you realize like my body's building an entirely new organ, my hormones are like through the roof right now and kind of letting them know expectation wise, like second trimester tends to be a little bit better in terms of that fatigue and that nausea. Um, So having them work around their symptoms that day, because what, what feels good to you at week eight and a half might not feel good to you at week nine and what feels good to you at week nine might not feel good to you at week 10 and a half. So understanding that first trimester, there's a lot, a lot of changes that are going on in the body. And it really does have to be a day by day assessment of your feelings. So a six mile an hour run on a Tuesday might feel on that RPE scale like a four. But if you do that same exact run on a Friday, it might feel like you're at like an eight or a nine. And that means that's too much that day. So it takes a lot of like intuition, self-reflection, Um, And so we really do first trimester try to literally just talk about this scale and understanding that we are not going to use speed. We're not going to use distance. We're not going to use heart rate as our markers for effort. We need to use exertion for effort because it's going to be very, very different depending on what's going on with your body during during the day in that first trimester. Does this mean that running workouts, actual structured, faster training sessions is probably not a good idea when you first learn that you're pregnant. Even if, you know, maybe you're a woman who's in the middle of a training season and you're doing two harder sessions a week, does it mean you should eliminate those from your training or maybe cut down on the the intensity a little bit just to make those sessions a little bit easier? How should we think about the faster workouts? I think with the faster workouts, and of course, it you know, it depends on what you're doing before. If you've never done a speed workout before, once you find out you're pregnant is not the time to go do a speed workout. But for the sake of argument, let's say that these athletes have been doing speed workouts for a while. Their bodies are used to that. They know what to expect. And usually the longer you've been running, the better of kind of a self gauge you have. I think um, actually it was on one of your other podcasts talking about just the gears, like the gears that you have and being able to kind of moderate those gears. So the longer that you do this, the better idea you have. So for these athletes that have been doing speed workouts for a longer period of time in those situations, I don't think it's something you necessarily have to stop. You can likely continue again, those bursts of like five to seven um, on that RPE scale are still okay. You don't want to be at like a 10 out of 10 effort. Like your body's got a lot going on. You're building a human. The benefit you get from going to that, like absolute max is just not the juice is just not worth the squeeze. Now, the thing is that there is absolutely no research that exercise would increase likelihood of a miscarriage. But during first trimester, when these women are training in the very early stages of pregnancy, we know just from just life experience that the likelihood of miscarriage is highest in first trimester. It is not linked to exercise in any way, shape or form. It just is higher 
in first trimester. So I have occasional women who will like work out and then something happens and they start blaming themselves and thinking that this happened because I worked out. There's absolutely no link right now between the two. The things that you want to be careful with with a speed workout is that you, again, are not getting your heart rate super, super high and keeping it high for very, very long periods of time. Um, And then two is body temperature. So if you're doing your strength workouts outside, and especially, like I said, I live in South Georgia. So let's say you're doing a speed workout outside, you have to be effective about your cooling um, because that is extra important during pregnancy. There are some studies that do link higher body temperature. So like, for example, with women who got sick and had a fever, that if you keep a fever for a really long period of time, that can be linked with birth defects. So being really smart about your cooling. And if that means it's a really hot day outside, maybe we don't do it outside. Maybe we run a little bit on a treadmill if that's something you're comfortable with or find like an indoor track, have cooling um, devices available. So like cold towels or like isolary or things like that, that can kind of help moderate that body temperature so that we're not getting that out of control. Yeah, it sounds like extremes are really what we are trying to avoid during this stage of pregnancy. So, you know, maybe brutally hard races, maybe those workouts where you're going to the well, you know, those quote unquote, see God workouts where you leave everything on the track and you're completely spent. And then also these exercising in extreme heat and other types of weather conditions might be uh, disadvantageous. Exactly. I think you have to shift your mindset a little bit to really think more about like, I need to maintain as much of my fitness as I can during pregnancy. This is not likely a time where we're really going to gain tons of like cardiovascular endurance. We're not going to build speed. We're not going to, but we want to maintain so that that way after baby gets here and we start working our way back up, we don't have to now moderate for the fact that our body is healing and we didn't do anything for that full pregnancy we can kind of just like keep as level as we can. But this, again, is not the time to kind of set PRs. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. I think there's, you know, seasons of life. And if, when you find out you're pregnant, it's not the time to go after that Boston qualifier or something like that. Now's the time to grow a human being and, and really attend to that. Is there any type of exercise that's a good idea to add to your training program when you find out you're pregnant? Yeah, so there, there used to be this blanket statement of like, if you haven't been doing something, you shouldn't start doing it when you're pregnant, right? That used to be, again, the kind of general guidelines. Um, And all this being said, even for the rest of the information we talk about, we have to remember that the very first guidelines for even discussing return to running after pregnancy came out in 2019. So that literally was three years ago. Um, Up until this point, like this was just something that was like never discussed. You got that six-week clearance. And so you kind of just went from there. So the general guidelines up to that point for pregnancy were if you weren't doing it before pregnancy, pregnancy is not really the time to start something new. That being said, the amount of women that I work with who don't actually have great core control going into pregnancy, it's really high. And I'm sure, you know, anybody who has ever run knows how important the core is. It is just like the foundation of everything. And then you get pregnant and core obviously kind of takes a beating, right? Because baby is going to stretch that out. That is normal. That is expected. And so the better core control that we have as we go through pregnancy, the much easier it is to kind of reconnect that muscle after pregnancy. A lot of us are doing lots of superficial core training. So that would be like your sit-ups, anything that kind of involves that like rectus abdominis six-pack muscle where we're really trying to develop that. But during pregnancy, it's extra important to work those deep core muscles that help to kind of hold the abs together and stabilize the spine. So you're thinking about transverse abdominis, 
and the obliques that kind of wrap around and minimize, hopefully, the severity of that ab separation that happens um, with pregnancy. So that is like one of the biggest things that we work on throughout pregnancy. For a lot of women, they weren't doing that before. They were doing kind of your traditional core workouts. Um, But I think those are the women, too, that you'll see after baby and they'll say, well, I'm doing 200 sit-ups a day. My core is super strong. I don't understand why this isn't healing well, like why my stomach is still looking um, the way that it is. And so a lot of it is about wrapping the spine and using those deep, deep, deep core muscles that kind of work with the pelvic floor muscles and understanding how those things connect. Um, I wish that there was a lot of good resources out there in terms of like, here's some things you could look at online to see what I'm talking about. But that really is something that I think again, is relatively new in terms of a discussion, because again, the general guideline has been like, hey, don't do core work, like just don't do it. Or if you Google pregnancy safe core work, you're going to see things like planks, anything that's kind of like static. Um, But the bottom line is, I can't even tell you if a plank is safe or not. I need to see your form. I need to see what that ab, that linea alba, that middle of the abs looks like. Are you having coning? Um, Are you breathing correctly? Like, what does that look like? And it might be safe at week 14. And then by week 16, it's not safe anymore. So there is no list of pregnancy safe exercises. And that's the reason is because your body changes so quickly that what is safe one week might not be safe the next week. So as much as I wish I could say like, Hey, send your listeners to this website and they can see, you know, this really great deep core stuff. um, That's something where you really need a specialist to kind of step in and kind of explain that and make sure that you're doing that correctly. Um, but that's one of my big things that like, Hey, I know you probably weren't doing this beforehand, but we need to add this in. I think that's a powerful idea to keep in mind. You know, there's something called, uh, you know, building fitness on top of dysfunction. And it sounds like if you're doing an exercise improperly and you're having problems with your body, continuing to do that exercise is just building more fitness on top of more dysfunction. And it's not actually going to get better. Now, are there any example exercises for targeting some of those deeper muscles that you were mentioning? You know, I think runners are are very aware of and familiar with more traditional core workouts that do include things like planks and and many other ab exercises, but it sounds like, like you said, those are superficial. So how can we get at some of those deeper muscles? So planks can be, I mean, they can be deep too, right? The bottom line is really every core exercise should also be the deep core, but I think what happens is because we, before we get pregnant, we really don't have much of a need to like mentally connect to that muscle. Things generally just kind of work the way that they work and we don't really have pain problems and it's not an issue. I think it, that muscle tends to get dysfunctional during pregnancy because of obviously the stress that it goes through the postural changes that we experience during pregnancy as the belly and the center of gravity get pulled forward. Um, and so it's one of those muscles that I think you don't really have to focus on until pregnancy or in a lot of cases when I don't see women until postpartum, then we focus on a postpartum. But kind of like you were talking about building on top of dysfunction, if we have that dysfunction there and then the belly gets bigger, the muscle gets more dysfunctional, then you go through, let's be honest, labor delivery is a traumatic experience. Even if things go perfectly for your body, it is traumatic. It is a big deal. And so after baby gets here, then trying to connect to a muscle that you've never connected to before is really, really difficult. So if I'm trying to help somebody find that kind of deep core muscle, we're really, what we're trying to do is activate the core, brace the spine without actually like moving the pelvis, tilting the pelvis. So it's not tilting the pelvis back. It's not like tucking the tailbone under. 
it's teaching those muscles that wrap around the spine. A lot of times you can kind of feel this best with like a forceful exhale. So I'll have patients like really slowly exhale, like they're blowing out a balloon. And then if once you get all your air out, if you blow out a little bit more, you'll feel that muscle kind of under your hands at your core, like turn on. We kind of say like, we have all kinds of crazy cues, but we'll say like, if the ribs are shutter doors, they kind of pull together. So if you blow out that candle and then you blow out a little bit more and you'll feel your belly button kind of pull away from your fingers, that is where that deep core is. So even when I'm getting patients back into things like planks, postpartum, sometimes we'll start that with like a forceful exhale, get that muscle on and then be able to hold the plank while you're still breathing. We don't want it to be something you have to forcefully exhale exhale and hold your breath every time you're doing it because that's just not functional either. Um, but you can think about it too. Um, when you are pregnant, we say like hug baby. So use the, the stomach muscles to kind of hug baby, pull baby back to the spine without actually tilting the pelvis back and forth. I think you can see this easiest, especially during pregnancy, if you're on hands and knees. So like in a quadruped position, forcefully blow out that candle. And as you blow out that candle, pull baby away from the table. And that is your actual deep core. So being able to activate that, then do your movement, whatever your movement is, whether it's a dead bug or whether it's a um, the bird dog movement. Those are kind of the two most common, like everyone says, those are pregnancy safe um, or doing a plank, but being able to activate the deep core before you actually start the plank. So I think for most people, even after after baby gets here, when they know how to use that muscle correctly, they realize like, I don't know if I've ever really been doing this the right way, which is why you'll have patients say like, I can do planks, but I always feel them in my back or they hurt my back or things like that. It might be that you're activating that really superficial core um, and not activating what's below it and what's actually meant to stabilize the spine. So it's an important lifting principle too. Like a lot of strength and conditioning coaches will use it for lifting, for bracing before you do a heavy squat or like your one rep max and a deadlift or things like that. It's the same principle. It just becomes that much more important during pregnancy. And most people aren't focusing on that until it's like dysfunctional and then they start to learn it. So that's a really big picture idea of like, okay, I know you weren't doing this pre-pregnancy, but we're going to start during pregnancy so that you don't have to like try to learn this muscle after baby gets here. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And and it sounds like this is relatively low intensity type work. You know, it's it's body weight strength training essentially. And so it's probably not something that is going to be very high on that rating of perceived exertion. So it, it seems pretty safe. And you know, while you were talking, I was doing that exercise. I was holding my stomach and I breathed out and I just kept doing it. And you can definitely really sense those muscles contracting at the very end of the breath. And so you should definitely pause this podcast right now and try that exercise. And you can really feel that in your stomach. That's why a lot of people wear the, the weightlifting belts too, for the heavy stuff, not necessarily to actually provide external support to the spine, but because they can feel, they get that tactile feedback of like basically having your hands on your core. So if I wrap that weightlifting belt and then do my heavy squat, I can feel that bracing before I do that movement. So it's the same idea. It's just extra, extra, extra important during pregnancy because of those postural changes. Now, let's say this hypothetical runner we're talking about is going through their pregnancy, they're in the second trimester. At what point should they start modifying their running training? It, should this all be based on effort and how they're feeling over time, or are there more substantial milestones to look for? It's definitely going to be, be based on effort for second trimester. Second trimester to me is a really good sweet spot for most women. Now, of course, not every pregnancy is the same. So 
we use the general rule of if it applies, you know, to 75% of the people, 75% of the time, then we can kind of generalize this a little bit when we talk about it. So that's kind of what rule I'm going to use here. So for a low risk pregnancy, second trimester, a lot of that like hormonal peak has faded from first trimester. Um, You start to feel a little bit more alive again, things kind of come around the placenta is established. So you can kind of like get back to what you feel like is living life again. Um, so for a lot of women, second trimester is a really good sweet spot to really, I say, like even get stronger. Um, you're maybe not going to be able to build tons of intensity or volume in terms of your like high impact, like running training, but you can do lots of wonderful strength training here. You can do, um, you can, you can run if you're having, if you're running and you're not having discomfort with it, that's a good place to be. Um, so it really depends person to person too, I think in terms of their posture and in terms of their body changes, like, you know, you'll see some women during second trimester who are like barely showing. And then some women who are bigger and then depending on if it's first or second pregnancy, things may feel a little bit different. So again, it's that RPE scale. So checking in with that, we do tend to recommend during second trimester that we don't really push heavily into that five to seven range. So that one to four, if you look at the RPE scale, it's not necessarily, I think most people kind of think like, okay, eight would mean like high intensity, six would mean moderate. Four is actually like a moderate kind of pace there. So if you're feeling like moderate, then that's about a four. So usually for a second trimester, I try to say, let's hang out around a four, like something that feels like, okay, this is a little bit challenging. But again, I could largely maintain a conversation. Um, I'm not going to panic about heart rate, but if there was somebody here, could I string together a couple sentences? And it's okay if those sentences are a little bit breathy. Like if you're having a couple little like deep breaths that you need to take every now and then, um, that's fine. But second trimester tends to be, I think, a really good sweet spot for most people. Third trimester, I feel like, is when we really start to have to kind of back off a little bit in terms of intensity. And so if people are feeling good during second trimester, I'm all for them kind of pushing a little bit um, and doing workouts that feel moderately challenging to them. Again, we shouldn't be finishing where we're like on the floor wiping sweat and kind of like just feeling like we could vomit, but um, feeling like, okay, that was a good workout. Like I got a lot out of that um, and being able to kind of keep that going throughout for throughout second trimester. But a lot of it will be postural. So like if you're running with really bad posture as your stomach changes, then that can affect things for sure. And again, it's it's going to be a day-to-day kind of volume thing. Like you're going to have to check in with yourself on a daily basis and see how you feel. So having a good understanding of that RPE scale and being honest with yourself about how you're actually feeling will be hugely important. What about any red flags or warning signs? You did mention posture, and, and I can understand how, you know, the bigger you start getting, the more that can impact the position of your pelvis and you know, how you're carrying your spine when you're running, you could have more of a a pelvic tilt or more of a forward lean, perhaps. But is there anything else that that could be happening that as soon as it does, you know, that's okay, I definitely need to back off at this point. So you do want to look out for contractions. Okay, so I mean, the bottom line is the uterus, the abdomen, obviously, they're muscles. So I explain it to patients, like if you go on a run, and you kind of every now and then you might get a calf cramp or a quad, you might get a cramp. That's kind of how those Braxton Hicks, those kind of practice contractions can feel that really tightening around the abdomen. Those tend to be okay. And of course you want to discuss this with your provider, but those tend to be okay. Those tend to be like, okay, you're exercising. Um, and those can happen. Now the general guideline is you want less than four in the course of an hour. So if you're going to go, you know, exercise for an hour, whether it's, you're going to hour easy run, or if you're going to do a little bit interval work for moderate work, Um, you want less than four an hour and you want those to kind of calm down. Like if you were to sit, drink some water, those should back off a little bit. They should not be painful. True Braxton Hicks, like practice contractions are not painful. 
So if you notice that you're having like every couple minutes, you're having a contraction, if those contractions are getting painful, and then definitely, definitely any like bleeding needs to be mentioned to provider. Um, Even if it's just a little bit, it's never a bad idea to just mention it. Every now and then some spotting can be considered normal just because of the crazy amount of blood flow that we have going on. Um, But any kind of bleeding, I always have uh, people just mention it to their providers just to be on the safe side of things. So that would definitely be an indicator like stop, pause, let's kind of step back a little bit, figure this out. And a lot of times they might go to their OB and their OB says, oh yeah, it's fine. There's just like a little capillary down here that, you know, had a little bit of bleeding or whatever. Um, But always better to be safe on that end of things. So keeping that in mind. And then, I mean, you'll really avoid a lot of red flags if you just drink a lot of water too. Like those Braxton Hicks contractions can kind of back off with a little bit of rest and water um, and just trying to stay very well hydrated so that you're not overheating um, is super, super important. What about when women should consider just stopping running altogether? And how do you make that decision? So I think for most, this is, I think, where you have to have the discussion of like medical versus musculoskeletal talk. So from a medical perspective, and again, this is still relatively new. So this may not be something like to the women listening to this, you may talk to your doctor about this and they may not just be aware of this because I think these newer guidelines actually came out just in 2020. Um, But the newer guidelines are really okay with running all of pregnancy. So running throughout your entire pregnancy, as long as it feels good. And as long as that effort stays, you know, in that moderate range. Um, So that from a medical perspective, if you are low risk, um, there isn't any medical risk associated with continuing to run during pregnancy. Where I come in, I feel like it's the musculoskeletal risk. So for the pelvic floor muscles, you have to think about them kind of like a hammock that sit at the bottom of the pelvis And baby grows on top of those muscles. And so as baby gets bigger, there is more pressure and more force and demand on those muscles to hold up. Now, this doesn't mean you're going to go on a run and baby's going to like fall out if you go on more runs. It just means that you're putting more demand on those muscles. Just like if you were to gain weight, it kind of increases the demand on your hips and your knees and your ankles. The same idea happens with the pelvic floor muscles. They're just more demand as pregnancy goes on. So posture changes, you've got more demand on those muscles. So for most women, I feel like end of second trimester, beginning of third is where, again, that juice starts to not really be worth the squeeze, um, where we start to say, okay, could we do other things that might maintain cardiovascular health, like swimming or biking or um, anything that we can kind of keep this activity up, but not continuously bound on the pelvic floor muscles and repeatedly kind of like put them through that stress. So if I have women who are absolutely like, I have to run, I cannot stop running. Um, We'll talk about things like intervals, like maybe we jog for a minute and then walk for two minutes and jog for a minute and walk for two minutes so that your muscles can get a little bit of recovery. Um, And then two, actually running on a little bit of an incline. So like finding not a steep hill, but like a little bit of a hill And running on a little bit of incline can change those postural mechanics a little bit where during pregnancy, we tend to go in that like extra lordosis, right? We have that really big sway in the back as belly pulls forward. But if you run on a little bit of incline, it makes you lean forward just a little bit. So it takes a little bit of that postural demand away. So sometimes we'll talk about like, if you are going to run and it still feels okay, if we can run on a little bit of incline, yes, it's going to be harder on your quads and your glutes, et cetera but it's going to be better for those pelvic floor muscles and for that postural response. So sometimes doing like intervals on a little bitty hill can be helpful 
as well. So from a medical perspective, yes, you could run all throughout pregnancy for a low risk pregnancy, but from a musculoskeletal perspective, there usually is some benefit in backing off, letting those muscles just kind of ride all the way home and then postpartum getting back into that. You know, my perspective as a running coach is that the last, you know, month or two of pregnancy, the risk of developing some type of weird injury or or something similar to that because of those musculoskeletal issues, the changes in your posture, the changes in your body's weight distribution. It just seems like you keep saying, you've said it twice now, it makes me laugh. The juice is not worth the squeeze. And as a running coach, I might just say, let's swim for the last four weeks of your pregnancy because you might develop all these other issues. Can you develop those issues? Is this kind of like hunch that I have Uh, Is there any weight behind that? So obviously everything tends to be a little bit more lax. And as you get closer and closer to labor and delivery, that laxity can increase. So that relax and hormone that does relax everything. Um, It it's kind of pulsing through the body, of course, because we want pelvis to open up and let baby out. That's how we were designed. That's an amazing thing that our body does. Um, Now there are, and this is a big kind of like point of contention, I think in pelvic health PT world right now but there's not really any study like directly linking that laxity to injury and pain um, at this point. Now, again, this research is changing. I mean, when I say like weekly, I mean weekly. It's kind of crazy right now how much this has changed. Even like I said, I mean, my first was born five years ago and it, I mean, I was still doing the don't lift more than 25 pounds, keep your heart rate below 60%. And now it's like, oh, you could run all throughout pregnancy, continue strength training, et cetera. So right now there is no direct link with the laxity and tissue injury. But again, just from a clinical perspective, from a coaching perspective, you can imagine if you had any other athlete going through very similar changes, let's say, but it wasn't pregnancy related, but they had all these postural changes and all this weight gain changes and all this like different stuff going on, they're going to move differently, right? So that in itself, I think is again, kind of like you said, something where I'm like, there are other ways that we can kind of maintain, um, cardiovascular fitness and no, it's not as specific as running. And I know again, as a runner, we want to run. I totally get that. But I look at the long game here and I think kind of what you were saying earlier about if we set ourselves back just for these like last couple of weeks of pregnancy and we just take it a little bit easier and focus on things that can help us prep for labor delivery, maintain cardiovascular fitness in other ways, then we're talking about, to me, again, no direct link yet, no evidence yet. But to me, we're talking about an easier recovery in that postpartum period where we don't have to combat all these changes that we had happen during the end of pregnancy because we just were like refusing to give it up. So that's where, again, I think that medical versus musculoskeletal talk comes in. You're going to see now, like on the ACOG guidelines, that running is okay. I am happy to see that. Like, that makes me really happy because, again, that's the opposite of what the guidelines used to be, which was like, don't exercise, basically. Um, So I love pushing for that activity, but there's a lot safer ways to do it from a musculoskeletal perspective, especially towards the end. Yeah, if pregnancy is not a time to be building fitness the ninth month of pregnancy is certainly not the time to be doing, you know, any big workouts or long runs or or even super consistent running. I mean, I'm sure there's more recovery that needs to be built in because you're just not feeling uh, like your normal self at that point. Yep. Rachel, let's move on to postpartum running. Do you recommend a certain time off from running after birth? Is there flexibility with that? Is there a range? How do you think about that? 
So I think the easiest thing when I'm talking to patients about postpartum recovery is we, I will compare it to like an ACL repair. Okay. So with an ACL repair, you have this initial healing time, right? Like let the stitches heal, let the actual um, point where we reattached ACL, let that heal. You are doing some rehab, but it's very, very gentle. Then you move into more of a strength training phase. Can we get those muscles back on? Can we get them to work the way that they normally would? We move to like sit to stands and squatting and bridging. And then we take that into running, but running is like the last thing on the radar. So if that's what we do for an ACL repair, and you think about with pregnancy postpartum, you're talking about about a year of your body being different than it was. So up until again, very, very, very recently, we have done that very general six week guideline of like, okay, return to activity. But what we have seen is that in that zero to six week postpartum phase, no one knows what to do during that point. There is absolutely no guidance out there. So you have baby, you go home and you know this, like you have kids, it is total survivor survival mode for a little bit, right? Like, oh my gosh, we have to take care of this child. Like what is happening as a mom? I can tell you, you kind of go home and you think like, what happened to my body? Like whose body is this? Like this doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. I'm not moving the way I normally move. I don't feel very good. And so about for most women, I think week three, you start to feel I won't say normal by any means, but like you start to kind of move a little bit better. Stitches start to dissolve. Things start to feel like, okay, I'm doing better. And so that's where I see women who either go to the extreme end of like, oh, I'm starting to feel better. I'm going to go, you know, work it. Or I'm terrified. I have no idea what to do. And so they don't do anything because they don't know what's safe. So we have this really gray area of zero to six weeks postpartum where we either tend to go to one extreme or the other. And for a long time, it has just been for those six weeks, again, you go to one extreme or the other. And then at six weeks, you go for your follow-up. A lot of follow-ups aren't including like an internal muscle exam. They're not including any of those things that actually check the muscle. They're just saying, how are you feeling? They know at that six-week point that that likelihood of postpartum hemorrhage goes down. They know that your stitches are probably dissolved. So again, that medical clearance standpoint is, okay, things are probably largely quote unquote healed here, right? That placental wound has probably kind of scabbed over. Um, From a medical perspective, you are probably safe to go back to what it is you want to do. From a musculoskeletal perspective, you are absolutely not ready to jump into running at six weeks postpartum. So for a long, long time, it has been absolute clearance at six weeks. And so I try to talk to my patients about what do you think happens at the stroke of midnight on that five weeks and five or six days postpartum mark versus midnight on six weeks. It is not something magical that happens to our bodies at that point. It is just from a physiological perspective. We know that most of those tissues have probably healed, but we do that with every other surgery too, right? We know that those tissues take time to heal. And what we do is we send you to rehab, you strengthen them, you work them. And then the literal last thing you do is go back to running. For some reason with postpartum, we've been big on like, okay, at six weeks, if you want to go on a run, go on a run. There's no talk about like control. There's no talk about strength. There's no talk about endurance. It is just full clearance overnight at six weeks postpartum, which is just wild. I mean, it's wild. And so part of why this is such a soapbox of mine was I at three weeks postpartum, which again is kind of where I say people uh, start feeling better. 
my OB told me it would be okay if I wanted to go on a light jog just to take it easy was the advice. And for me, like a 10 minute easy jog was taking it easy. So I was like, sure. I went on my jog during my jog. I felt fabulous. Like my brain was like, I mean, endorphin explosion. I have been waiting to go on this run forever because I've been following the also wrong heart rate recommendation. So I haven't run in forever. And at three weeks postpartum, I felt great during my run. So the whole advice of like, oh, just do what feels good to you, blah, blah, blah. That didn't work. I come home and I felt horrific. I mean, when I say my, I felt like Morgans were falling on my body because they, they were basically at that point, like they had nothing to hold them up. They had just delivered a baby like three weeks ago. And so I started digging into this and thinking like, what did I just do? Like what happened to my body? Now this was before I specialized in pelvic health PT. Um, and basically everything on Google was like, now you have to have surgery and you can't have surgery until you're done having kids. And so I'm like, well, when can I have surgery? Like 10 years from now? Like, I don't know how many more kids I want went down this whole rabbit hole and then got into pelvic health PT world and was like, no wonder I felt like my organs were going to fall out of my body. My muscles were absolutely not ready for that. There are general timeframes that no matter how elite of an athlete you think you are, you can't beat some of those physiological and anatomical healing times. You have to give your body the input it needs. It doesn't matter how you know quickly you think you heal compared to everyone else. And so that six week clearance is where we can start strength training, but it's not where we start running, right? There has to be a buildup to that. So I give patients, if I'm seeing them during pregnancy, I give them a program that's a very general program for zero to six weeks. Like here's some things you can do week by week that can kind of help you get back to moving, get back to connecting with those muscles, um, start to feel more like yourself. And then when you come in and see me at six weeks postpartum, we'll do an internal muscle exam. We'll see how those muscles are working or not working. And then from six to 12 weeks, we'll get stronger, like focus just on strength, like double leg strength, single leg strength up on the table. Then we move to weight bearing the typical progressions that you do for every other musculoskeletal injury. And then at 12 weeks, we get to start talking about running. Um, If I have somebody who needs to run like for a career or has something that they're like, I have a a race that I've been planning my whole life for this. There are very rare cases where I will start to work on that impact around eight weeks postpartum. Um, But for the general population, I really don't push any running or jumping until about 12 weeks. I'm very curious about the first six weeks and what you recommend for new moms to be doing during that time. So if it's, if it's certainly not running, if you're going to start strength training in earnest around six weeks, what do you do before that time period? A lot of it's range of motion. So our bodies, because they change so much during pregnancy, we lose a lot of range of motion, especially in like the thoracic spine area because of all the craziness that happens around the abdomen and the ribs. Um, so usually what I'll have you do is I have it like every two weeks, so zero to two weeks, two to four weeks, four to six weeks. And so in those zero to two weeks, honestly, my main priority for zero to two weeks is heal, right? Like try to rest as best as you can. I hate when people say that because like babies are likely like not sleeping and you're probably not getting great rest, but try to heal as best as you can. Um, work on things like deep breathing, like reopening the rib area, like trying to get back connected to that breath. Because everyone who's been pregnant knows you cannot take a deep breath at the end of pregnancy. So working on, again, that deep breathing, that core connection, some of that, like maybe just laying on your back and doing like pelvic tilting, very gentle range of motion, like cat, cow, child's pose, 
Um, and some of this will vary depending on if you've had a C-section or not, right? So like some of that surgical incision site might not feel really good if you had a C-section, but finding very gentle stretches that start to slowly restore range of motion. And then usually around two to four weeks, we try to integrate some walking, like just regular walking. I try to keep that less than about 10 minutes at a time. That's going to be different based on every provider, but just from what I've seen clinically, that's what I recommend. So for example, if I have a patient who wants to go on a 30 minute walk, instead of one 30 minute walk, let's do 10, uh, three 10 minute walks. Because what that does is you go on that 10 minute walk, you come home, prop your legs up, let your muscles recover, refuel, hang out with baby, heal, et cetera. And then later you can go on another walk. That's different than going on a consecutive 30 minute walk where those pelvic floor muscles are having to like try to heal your organs are on top of them, pressing down every step that you take. And so if you're kind of giving yourself a little more recovery time, then that kind of works our way up just again, like we would with any other musculoskeletal injury. So very short bouts. And then around four to six weeks is where we start to talk about, okay, maybe we start to increase that up to about 15 to 20 minute bouts beyond six weeks. We can start to, again, kind of slowly work our way up from 30 minutes or so, but two to four weeks, I'll say about 10 minutes at a time, four to six weeks, about 15 to 20 minutes at a time. If this is assuming that symptoms are going well, we're not noticing any increase in pain or anything like that, but just slowly kind of working your way up through that, keeping the duration likely shorter than you think it's going to be. Um, you see a lot of these stories come out about athletes, like getting back to running at like two to four weeks postpartum. And is I guess, great and inspiring as that really is. There just is no way that the body is really ready for that at that time. So as much as like, I am all for getting back to it, Again, the long game, if you take it easy and you do things the right way in these first three months, which a lot of people call the fourth trimester, the first three months postpartum, if you do things right in that realm, you're going to set yourself up for way more success over the next kind of year postpartum, as opposed to if you do things wrong and then you have to backtrack because now you're having leaking or incontinence or um, prolapse symptoms or things like that. So back pain, hip pain when you go on your runs because the muscles just aren't working well. So Working your way up, but zero to two weeks is range of motion. Two to four weeks, I try to get reconnected to the core, that deep core, that low intensity stuff we kind of talked about earlier. And then four to six weeks is where we start to talk about, okay, we could do some things like sit to stands or clamshells or bridges or things that start to activate the muscles. Come see me at six weeks and let's get into a strength training program and then back to running hopefully around the 12 week mark. Is it helpful to think that you're essentially starting from ground zero from scratch after pregnancy and birth? Because it sounds like you have to focus on healing, then some very basic mobility, then some very basic strength training, and then some walking. I mean, it is one of the slowest progressions of exercise that you can find out there for any, any person. And it seems like after you give birth, that's when we need to be as conservative as possible with our exercise? I think that the more that you know about it, the less conservative you have to be. So when I say that, I mean that for my patients that come in during pregnancy and work on some of the stuff during pregnancy, when they come in for their visit postpartum, I mean, I don't have to teach you how to activate your core. You know how to do it. Like you've got this. You already did your zero to six week postpartum plan. You come in at six weeks and we get to get to what I call like the fun stuff, like the stuff that you've been like itching to start doing. Like we'll talk about squatting and lunging and things like that. But for my patients who like have never done a good diaphragmatic breath or who have never done um, that deep core work and they come in at the six week mark, they don't know how to do a Kegel. They don't know how to activate the core. They don't know how to relax the pelvic floor muscles. So having to teach that 
that takes a couple weeks in itself. And so then you're talking about setting that timeline back even further. So I think that kind of prehab can be really, really important. And then it allows you to be less quote unquote conservative afterwards. I think the general trend up until recently was that we've been so overly conservative during pregnancy, right? Like don't do anything. Everyone like open the doors for the, I, I mean, work in patient care and I would go grab a dumbbell and everyone would be like, don't go get the dumbbell. We'll get it. And I'm like, I'm good. I'm just pregnant. I carry a 30 pound toddler around. I'll go get the five pound dumbbell for this patient. I'm fine. But pregnancy, we like dote over women. And then basically, as soon as baby gets here, we're kind of like, well, good luck. See you at your six week checkup. You do a six week, five minute talk, like how you feeling? Cool. Great. Uh, See you next year for your annual exam. And there's like, it's like, wait a second. Like, is anyone going to tell me how to like do any of this? And there's so much increase in terms of activity postpartum. Like, I mean, obviously before baby got here, you probably weren't bending and lifting as much as you are afterwards. So getting a baby out of the crib, out of the bassinet, like that frequency increases so, so much. And so like having a good connection to these muscles allows you to be able to do those things and be a little bit less quote unquote conservative when we're trying to get back to activity afterwards. So I think that can be super, super important in terms of quotes, beating up the healing process. Um, But I think the bottom line is too, that we have gotten so conditioned to think that postpartum is just this quick bounce back. Like you just kind of have the baby and you jog out of the hospital kind of thing. And now we're really realizing like how much lack of credit we've been giving our bodies and what they do on a regular basis. And so now that we're getting a better understanding of it, it seems like we're going backwards, like we're slowing women down. Um, but we're doing that because again, we know the long game. So I can't tell you the number of patients that I see who are 20 years postpartum and say, well, I started having leaking after my first baby 20 years ago and it just got, it never got dealt with. And so there's a research study that talks about if you're having leaking still at three months postpartum, you have a 92% likelihood that you're still going to be having it at five years postpartum. But the number of women who are leaking at three months postpartum and will talk to their friends about it, their friends just, oh yeah, you're, you know, you're a mom. That's that's normal. Like anytime you run a race, I can almost guarantee that there's women out there wearing pads because they can't run without leaking. They don't want to give up running. So they just keep leaking while they run because those muscles are not doing what they're supposed to do. And just like anything else, when they're not given a proper rehab program, that never, that never heals. It just continues to be dysfunctional and you continue to build that dysfunction on top of that. So it turns into a cycle. Um, So it seems like things are going backwards, like we're getting more conservative because we kind of are, because we know the long-term gain is a, is a different story. Yeah. And it seems like if you're really fit and in shape going into pregnancy and going into birth, it's probably putting you at an advantage with post-birth recovery. So having that good uh, core control and understanding how to activate those muscles If you're already in great running shape, maybe you're a little bit more likely to take time off from running and be okay with that and maybe just do some light swimming. And I think there's a lot of value in that. I'd love to talk briefly about rectus diastasis, which is something that you've mentioned briefly a little bit earlier. Uh, But this is something that uh, I'd love to know more about because you mentioned a proper recovery program. And usually for this issue, there does need to be a little bit more of a recovery program and not just a well, let's just do some general strength work. So can you talk a little bit about what it is and how we can address it? 
Yeah. So from, from here on forward, if I say DR, that's, that's what I'm talking about. So DR is that ab separation, but um, with DR, the, it used to be, again, this is something that in the past, probably five to 10 years has just completely shifted. So we used to like panic about DR a little bit. Now, when I have patients during pregnancy, we realize that like, depending on what study you read, about 99% of women have some form of DR by the time that they deliver baby, that would be pretty normal, right? Like that linea alba, that tissue in the middle there has to stretch to accommodate baby. That's what it's built for. Um, so it's a good thing. It means that that's our abs are kind of doing what they need to be doing. So first of all, just decreasing fear around it during pregnancy um, and understanding, especially again with my athletes where aesthetics may be more of a kind of concern, like this is probably going to happen, but it is okay. And the more that they are educated about it, I think the easier it gets in terms of treatment. So educating that like, hey, this is probably going to happen. We consider this largely normal. And it's something that we'll work on like after baby gets here. Now, because the research on this has changed so much, there is right now, again, no specific like protocol for DR in terms of what we're talking about in terms of healing. So up until very recently, the big push, and you'll still see this online, was testing the width of DR. So like putting your fingers kind of on around the umbilicus area, doing a little crunch and kind of seeing how far apart those sides of the six pack muscle are. So three on one side, three on the other, and how wide is that tissue between the two? And so up until recently, we've kind of said, okay, well, one to two finger widths is considered normal. Any more than that is quote unquote DR. We're realizing now that that isn't necessarily right. One, because whose fingers are we talking about? Two, there are people who have some degree of DR at baseline, like before they get pregnant, they just have a wider linear alba for whatever reason. What we treat now and the way that we tend to treat it, at least in our clinic at the moment, is we care more about the tension that you can generate across that tissue. So how much load can that tissue tolerate before it starts to show signs of a pressure mismanagement? So again, during pregnancy, teaching patients not to do activities that show a lot of coning. So coning would be that kind of pressure through the linea alba. So if you're laying on your back and you go into like a sit-up movement, do you see the tissue kind of push upward into almost like a, we call it triangle, triangle abs? So do you see that tissue push upward? And if you do, can you activate that deep core and pull that back to flat? So can we load that tissue without pushing through? So if you think about it almost like putty, and if you were to push through on that putty and kind of like thin that out, you can imagine how that would contribute to further separation. So teaching the tissue to be able to handle load, again, just like all the other tissues in our body, we try to teach them, how can I tolerate this load? And what we're hoping to see, I hope in the near future, is that the more we increase the load on that tissue without putting it through undue stress the thicker and more resilient, fingers crossed, it will get. And so that's where I think most of the treatment paradigm is moving for that DR is to, okay, we want to load it. Up until recently, it's been don't load it. Like don't, don't stress it out. It's already stressed out. And now we know, well, if I can load it and I can like teach my core to like work the way that it's supposed to and manage those pressures correctly, the long-term effect should be that that tissue thickens and is better able to handle load outside of this training program. So it's not so much about the width anymore. It's more about the depth of it, the thinness of it, how well it tolerates load. And is it functional? So again, there's not really anything actually linking a DR to dysfunction or to pain. We have 
kind of hypothesize that those two are related, but there's really nothing linking those two together right now. So you might have a patient or you might have a notable DR, but you can do everything you need to do. And if that's the case, then that's not a problem. It's more about teaching function. And can we teach this tissue to be a little bit more resilient? And I think the best way to do that, again, is knowing what it is during pregnancy, making sure that we minimize it as much as possible during pregnancy so that we can train it appropriately. And then postpartum being really aware that like, hey, this is still a thing. I mean, I'm 18 months postpartum. And if I do like a double leg raise and I'm not paying attention, I can still see coning. But if I am paying attention, I do that like kind of forceful exhale, like deep core activation. I can take those little triangle abs and kind of pull them completely flat. So if I'm paying attention, I can load the tissue without stretching it so I can teach it to be more resilient. So that long term, that's not something that I have to think about anymore. But at long-term healing, we're really looking more at like 12 to 18 months for a DR. It's not something that like at six weeks postpartum, you're ready to go and like things should be healed. We're looking more at like 12 to 18 months before you're talking about like, okay, things are probably how they're going to be. So let's work on loading it from here um, instead of like trying to avoid all things while it heals back to original width, more about like, okay, whatever the width is, let's load it appropriately so that it's more resilient. Do you have any recommended exercises for loading the abdominal tissue there? Or is is almost any ab exercise acceptable as long as you're doing it mindfully and you're making sure not to overstress the tissue? I think that's where most of the research really is at that point. At this point, and that's where I lean. I'm very exercise driven. I like loading the tissue through exercise. So that, again, is another reason why people will say, well, can you send me a list of pregnancy safe exercises or postpartum safe exercise? And I'm like, there isn't one. And there's not one because what might be safe for me might not be safe for you, which might not be safe for your neighbor, because it depends on the amount of control that you have. And so looking at the abs and seeing what they look like from a functional perspective, there is a something called the Sarman progression. um, And that is just like a general walkthrough of kind of ab exercises that you can look at includes things like that 90 90 position where your legs are like in tabletop and you drop the heels down one at a time. So there is a little walkthrough that you can do, but again, you can get away with doing those exercises with that coning, those triangle abs, if you're not paying attention. So like if I didn't, if I had my shirt down and wasn't paying attention, I might have coning, but if I'm really looking at it and I'm able to kind of hone in on that and correct it, then that's when it becomes kind of a better solution to that long-term tension problem. So being really aware of it, I think is the biggest thing. And once people see it, like if you're pregnant or postpartum, you probably know what I'm talking about that, just that seeing that immediate, like, Ooh, that looks different. Like that's not normal for my abs and understanding that if you can find a movement that causes that, and then you can do that movement mindfully and eliminate it. That's probably a really good movement for you. So like for me right now, it's that double leg raise. If I keep both my legs straight and I try to lift my legs, If I'm not paying attention, it's going to happen. But if I'm paying attention, I can correct it, which means that I'm definitely loading that tissue and I'm teaching the abs to kind of like hold that in a little bit better, manage that pressure without holding my breath, without bearing down, just learning to activate that hopefully long-term will make that tissue more resilient. And I think we'll see a lot of research about that in the very near future. Now, Rachel, what about in the the months after that quote unquote fourth trimester. You know, we've gotten through our sort of three month postpartum period. We're back to running a little bit. You know, we're doing some some good strength training to support our bodies and get that musculature back online. 
Are there, is there anything we should be on the lookout for in sort of the next six to 12 months? You know, it, and also it sounds like DR is something that could persist for a while. So that could be something that you're constantly working on. But is there anything else women should be on the lookout for? I think the biggest thing that goes missed in that time period is there are a lot of signs of pelvic floor dysfunction that I think people don't realize they're signs of pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, So when I say pelvic floor dysfunction, I mean that those muscles can be underactive, they can be overactive, again, just like any other muscle in our body. Um, And so a lot of pelvic floor dysfunction symptoms can present as like bowel or bladder issues. And so for a lot of women, like trying to get back to running, it goes beyond just like, okay, well, I leak or I have leaking when I'm running. It can be that urgency. Like as soon as you start running, like I have got to go to the bathroom and I just went, or like I'm one mile in, why do I have to suddenly go to the bathroom? Same thing with like fecal urgency feeling like I have got to get to a bathroom right now. If I don't get to a bathroom, I'm going to lose it. So like knowing that that urgency, that frequency can be related to the muscles. If the muscles are really tight, overactive, they can kind of press on things and like cause aggravation and irritation in ways that they didn't pre-baby. And so knowing that those symptoms can happen and understanding that maybe it's not a bowel or a bladder thing, maybe it's my muscles are kind of causing some of that frequency, meaning like I have to go very often or that urgency, meaning like as soon as I have to go, I have to get to a bathroom. There is no like ramp up where normally, you know, you get that feeling like I got to go to the bathroom and then it kind of like slowly increases with time. Urgency would be like, I got to go to the bathroom and I got to go now. And so like having to pause a run to go take care of that might mean that when you're taking off on your run, the muscles are going into like clinch overactive mode. And because they're doing that, you start to notice these other symptoms. So like being aware that that can be a sign of pelvic floor dysfunction. And that's something a pelvic floor physical therapist can definitely treat. Um, if you have access to one in your area, that's something that can be treated. Um, so in that six to 12 month where you really start to ramp up the activity, that sometimes is where those symptoms will start to kick in. Um, so knowing that that is a thing and that can be related to muscle and not just bowel bladder, I think is really important. And then keeping in mind again, like this is a process, um, pregnancy, you know, is a 10 month period, right. And then you've got hopefully 12 weeks of solid recovery. And for a lot of women, it might take longer than that. Like we might not get back to running until 16 to 20 weeks, depending on how much tearing there was, or was it C-section versus vaginal. So there's different time frames for that recovery. But when you do start to get back into that independent running routine, we don't need to go on like an hour long run. We need to start just like we would with anything else. Like let's do some intervals, like one minute on one minute off, and then we'll try two minutes on and one minute off and kind of increasing that volume with time, the same way we would with any other musculoskeletal injury. Um, instead of just thinking like, okay, at the dawn of 12 weeks, I get to go on my first long run. Just being really smart about that, I think is going to be really important and really appreciating what those muscles have been through instead of kind of considering this like something that we just immediately are cleared for. Right. And putting on my running coach hat again, you know, the way that I'm thinking about this too is partly the fact that in the last maybe two months of pregnancy, this athlete has become detrained because they're not working out as much. And then they just spent 12 weeks or more not running. And so anytime you spend that much time away from running, the buildup period has to be much more gradual, much more slow, so that you actually have a chance to adapt to all these new training stresses. And it's not just the time off, it's the fact that you went through a traumatic experience and then took time off from running. So there's an element of healing in addition to simply taking time off from running. So I I think being more conservative is only in your best interest. 
when you're getting back into things, especially back into long runs, workouts, signing up for races, you know, doing a max deadlift in the gym, you know, doing those kinds of things. Yeah. So even in the like normal birth, let's say everything just goes perfectly. There are 11 pelvic floor muscles and they stretch to 250% of your resting length. So um, if you think about that in terms of a more popular muscle, like a quad or a hamstring, like if I went on a run and pulled my hamstring to 250% of its resting length, there's going to be a long recovery time with that, right? So just forgetting all the 10 months of pregnancy and body changes, you have to think about these muscles that went to two and a half times their normal length and now have to recover. And then on top of that, have to learn how to function again and then get stronger and then learn how to work in a complicated setting because running it's a quote body weight activity, but that's not how your body perceives it, right? Your body sees it as more to like a two to three times your body weight activity. So you can train body weight, but you're, you're using impact now. So we have to retrain impact as well. So re teaching those muscles to work in that setting is, it's a, it's a process, but like you said, that conservative effort on the front end of things will serve you so much better as you get to that six months, 12 months, 18 months postpartum, versus really setting yourself so far back because you're just so eager to get back to it in those first 12 weeks. So that's kind of what this this protocol really is all about. Um, and it actually just on Friday, so this is since I've talked to you last, got accepted for publication. So it will be in um, the International Journal of Sports Physical Therapy in the next two to three months. So it will be open access. So all coaches, all providers will have access to it. Um, but it basically is just a timeline of like, here's kind of some ideas that we really should be doing and my hope is that, you know, we take this protocol and we continue to develop it. Like, let's put it into like big studies and figure out what works and what doesn't. But right now there's just nothing. And so women are left to kind of like, and coaches too are left to kind of like, okay, I'm just going to go on the, what I got, which is that six week clearance. Like you're in good shape. Like, let's hop to it. Like, as you're six weeks, like you feel good, let's do it. And then setting yourself so far back. So hopefully this starts to kind of lay a little bit of groundwork on that. And like I said, the first guidelines for that weren't even out until 2019. Um, and it was a very, just like very in-depth paper, but just kind of like, here's some ideas. And now we've had a little bit of time to start kind of like digging into that. Um, so this protocol is, it goes through pregnancy and postpartum. So like, here's some things to keep in mind during pregnancy. And here's some timelines for postpartum, because that's a really big question for a lot of patients, providers, coaches, strength, um, strength guys. So it's just something to kind of keep in mind that there's a lot more going on, I think, than we've given the body really credit for. And if we let it heal appropriately, just like anything else, it will pay dividends long term. Well, I think it's fascinating that this field is changing so much so quickly and just over the last couple of years. And, and no doubt over the next couple of years, we'll learn even more and runners will have even better resources at their fingertips to help them come back from pregnancy and still be able to run and accomplish all of their goals. Rachel, Lord knows I've missed some things. Is there anything that you'd like to add before we wrap for the day? Um, not necessarily that I can think of. I think the re really the biggest thing is kind of what we've talked about, just really giving the body credit for what it's, it's really doing and understanding that, um, pregnancy is not necessarily a time where we're like super fragile and need to be like, overly, overly conservative, we can continue to do these things. And for a lot of your athletes, like that mental health is going to really be heavily dependent on that. Their body is changing. It's going through a lot. So that if you are able to guide them on like, Hey, this is what's safe. This is what's not. Um, then that helps guide that mental health throughout that process as well. 
Same thing with the postpartum recovery process. Those hormones are just, I mean, they're whack. It's like a crazy experience to go through. And so when you already have that going on and you don't know what to do to start feeling more like yourself, that is just a really, really hard process. So if you think about like, I let's say tore my Achilles tendon and no one told me how to rehab it, like how frustrating of a process that would be to kind of try and get back to what you want to do. And that's what women have been experiencing for such a long time. So knowing that this is available and understanding like, hey, if I don't know how to guide this, let me find you somebody who does, because there is so much help available for women. I always joke that like, if the clinic ever gets really slow, I'm just going to write on a sign like, hey, do you have leaking when you cough, laugh, sneeze, or do you leak on your runs? Or do you have pain on your runs? Or And just go stand on the corner and say like, hey, is this you? Because I bet you out of 10 women that pass that sign, probably nine of them do and have been told for a long time that there's that's just kind of the price you pay for being a mother. So understanding that mom, being a mother and being an athlete don't have to be mutually exclusive. I mean, you see these athletes now, like you've got Alex Morgan, you've got Serena Williams and they're performing. I mean, they're doing great. And you see, I think it was the recent American half marathon record as a mom of two, um, like just crazy, crazy stuff that women are doing after they have babies with the correct guidance. So it doesn't mean that it has to be the end of that running career. It absolutely can be a springboard for kind of working into that health afterwards and kind of like moving forward from there if you do it correctly. So just understanding that this is available and it's something that you can get access to if you ask for it, uh, I think is really the biggest message. Awesome. Rachel, this was so helpful and and I'm so grateful that you've included so much helpful information in the last hour. Um, and I'm going to be including links in the show notes on strength running to many of the resources that you mentioned, but thank you so much for your time and your expertise today. This was just a whirlwind of knowledge for all of our pregnant postpartum and soon to be pregnant moms out there. Yes. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening in, my friends. If you found value in this episode, I would so appreciate a review in Apple Music or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you love this podcast, please consider supporting our sponsors who help make it all possible. Inside Tracker is a company that I've been working with for years and I hope to continue for years to come. They're one of the most reputable personal blood testing companies that you can find. Their goal is to help you analyze your body's biomarkers, things like stress hormones like cortisol, testosterone, vitamin D, sex hormones, mineral levels, growth hormone, and more. And using your personal data, they then create optimal ranges where you should be in for each of these biomarkers. So if you're outside of that optimal zone, they then have an ultra-personalized nutrition platform that gives you science-backed suggestions for moving into the preferred zone. This helps you avoid any health problems, it optimizes your response to training, it improves your performances, and reduces your injury risk. I've personally gotten three ultimate tests myself, and I've always found the process to be very easy, it's simple, and it's very eye-opening. If you're not comfortable going into a lab to get your blood drawn, you can schedule a mobile blood draw where a tech will come to your house and do a blood draw in about 15 minutes. Go to insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning to see how you can get 25% off site-wide on any personalized blood test that they offer. Of all the different purchases you can make in service of your running, this one can actually improve your performances. It's a wonderful opportunity, and you can see all the details at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. Now, before you go, I want to hook you up with some free electrolytes 
Our sponsor, Elemental Labs, is offering a free gift with your purchase at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. You'll get a sample pack with every flavor so you can try them all before deciding what you like best. Right now, I'm on a real watermelon kick. And if that doesn't sound tasty, citrus is my number two favorite flavor. Elemental Labs makes electrolytes for athletes and low-carb folks with no sugar, artificial ingredients, or colors. It's surprisingly delicious. Seriously, everyone who I've given it to loves it. And it can be a helpful way to prevent dehydration this summer. If you sometimes feel overly tired or you get headaches, cramps, or sleeplessness after long runs or workouts in particular, you might have an electrolyte imbalance or a deficiency. Boost your performance and your recovery, especially in the heat this summer, with Elemental Labs. They're the exclusive hydration partner to Team USA Weightlifting, and quite a few professional baseball, hockey, and basketball teams are also on regular subscriptions. Check them out at drinklmnt.com strengthrunning to get your free sample pack with a purchase and get your hydration optimized for the upcoming summer season. That's our show today, my friends. Thank you for being part of our community, and we will be in touch soon.